Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. Uh, this morning, we are continuing our sermon series that we be- began a few weeks ago, uh, looking at the life of, Mil- of Moses that we read about in the book of Exodus. Last week, we left uh, Moses uh, having escaped a near-death experience as his mom put him in the Nile River, and he was uh, taken out of the river by Pharaoh's daughter and adopted into the royal household. And what this means is that Moses would have been wealthy and privileged beyond anything that we can imagine today. Moses grew up in the royal family. Imagine you being adopted by the Queen of England into her family. That was Moses' life. He had it really good. He got the best education that would have been available on the planet uh, at the time. And so he had everything. And we're going to read a story today about the fact that Moses, who had everything, who had all the riches, all the glory, all the privilege that he could have just enjoyed for the rest of his life, he left it all behind. Left it all behind in order to be united together with the slaves of his empire. Why would he do that? Why would he leave a life of great privilege in order to be connected together with a group of despised slaves? That's the question I want us to answer today, to ask and answer. Uh, Why would Moses leave this life of great privilege and ultimately live a life of exile and a life of being despised, a life of being ultimately buried in an unmarked grave somewhere in the Arabian Peninsula. That's the life that he left in order to do that. Why would he do that? And would you do the same? Would you do the same? Well, let's read today in our passage in Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. I invite you to stand, please, as we read. We stand out of respect for the one who's speaking, who is not ultimately me, but is ultimately the Lord who speaks in his word. So let's read Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner 
in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight this morning as we come to your word. Teach us, instruct us, shape us into the people that you desire us to be and whom you've redeemed us to be in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, when I was in middle school, I played rhythm guitar for a band called the Aquarium Rescue Unit. I know. We mostly covered Nirvana songs for the seventh grade talent show and played bad hard rock for our small group of friends. Uh, and, but after a few months after naming our band, we realized, believe it or not, that there was already a band called the Aquarium Rescue Unit. And so we had to change the name before we started making multi-platinum records and uh, we got a cease and desist letter from the, the real Aquarium Rescue Unit. But before we made it big, I got a call from the front man one afternoon to let me know that I was being relieved of my duties as the rhythm guitar player of uh, what the, the band formerly known as the Aquarium Rescue Unit. And uh, it was probably the right thing. I wasn't all that good at guitar, and I didn't have a rock star image. Uh, they could see that already in seventh grade. Uh, and, but it still stung. It stung at the time. It stung because I thought, I had thought, this is my group. This is my clan. These are my people. And yet, all of a sudden, I was on the outside wondering, well, if these weren't my people, then who are my people? Where do I belong? Well, that's a question that Moses at some point would have begun asking throughout his childhood. Now, the text in Exodus doesn't tell us how old he is in this passage, but if you uh, fast forward to the book of Acts, uh, Stephen says that Moses was about 40 years old. That was the Jewish tradition, that he had spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in exile, and 40 years leading the people through the promised land. So uh, we'll take Stephen's word for it that he was 40 years old. But as an adopted kid, uh, he would have been raised in all the customs of Egypt. It was something that Egypt was the world that he knew. He was trained by Egyptian teachers. He knew all the Egyptian stories. It would have felt like home to him. He knew the jokes that the Egyptians would have laughed at. That felt like his people. And yet, like many adopted kids, at one point during his childhood, he would have found out that he, by birth, was not an Egyptian. Maybe uh, his mom, his adopted mom, had told him the story about when she found him in the river one day, and he would have realized that, uh, that maybe he didn't look exactly like all the, uh, the other Egyptians, although he did look enough like an Egyptian to where the, the gals in, uh, in, in Midian thought that he was an Egyptian. I don't know if you caught that, but they thought he was an Egyptian, so he looked somewhat like him, but maybe he didn't look exactly like them. But he realized, these aren't my people. And he also realized at the same time that not only were they not his people, but the people that were his people were the slaves of the Egyptian empire. And so this is a story about how God began to remove him from his adopted culture of of Egypt and to begin to unite him together with an unlikely people, the people of Israel, despised and enslaved people. And perhaps that's a question that you've asked before in your life as well. Who are my people? Where do I belong? How do I I get connected with others? 
Uh, You long to be known and accepted and loved, and yet you wonder, where is that supposed to happen? You know, if you're a Christian this morning, you know that the church is the place where that ought to be, ideally, but maybe some of you in your background have have a bad experience with that, where you think, you know what, the church is not the place where I felt most connected. The church fell short of the ideal that, the God, that God's word lays out for us in failing to embrace and to connect God's people together. And so maybe you're wondering, who, how do I find my people? Well, this morning, I, I want us to see three elements of what ought to tie God's people together. What tied Moses together with his people here and what still ties us together as a church today. And I want us to see that we share a common burden We share a common story, and we share a common God. And those three things come together to provide the kind of unity that ought to be manifested in the church. And my hope is that that as, as we see these things, that we would begin to live into our name, United Church of Bogota. But the question is, what are we united around? What are we united around? And I want us to, 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 to grow in uh, seeing these things as the true glue that holds us together as a community. So let's look at each of those in turn. We share a common burden, a common story, and a common God. First, a common burden. We're not sure why, but uh, Moses decides one day to go visit his people. As someone who lived in the palace... The slaves of the Hebrews, would not, they would not have been a part of one another's daily life. And so Moses would have had to go and observe the burdens of his people. And what does he see? In verse 11, it says, he looked on their burdens. Moses didn't have a whole lot of burdens in his life. And so when he goes and he sees the Hebrews, he sees the people who are burdened. Life had not changed for them over the last 40 years. They were still enslaved. They were still building uh, the building projects that Pharaoh had put on. They were still under the taskmasters. They were slaves, and Moses saw their burdens, and that's the first thing that he does. He goes to see them and observe them. But when he gets there, he sees a particularly acute act act of suffering, and that is he sees one of the Egyptians beating a Hebrew. We're not sure if this is one of the bosses, the taskmasters who are beating one of his the people under his charge, or whether it was just a random act of violence, we're not sure. But he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and look at the way that he describes the, the Hebrew who's beating, being beaten. He says, as one of his people. One of his people is being beaten. He has sympathy for his brother who is burdened. He feels for him. And he feels for him so much that he intervenes, and he intervenes in a way that he shouldn't have. He commits murder. <laughs> He kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. Um, And we know that that wasn't even just a crime of passion. It was somewhat premeditated. It says he looked this way and that, and then he killed him. Uh, That's one reason why we don't always look to the characters of the Old Testament as models for our life. Uh, Abraham lied. Jacob was a swindler. Moses is a murderer. And so he's not here in order to, there's a lot of things about Moses' life that we're going to seek to imitate, his faith, for example, but not here. So don't take that as an, that's not an application point of the sermon, by the way. But it does show us how deeply Moses identified with his people. That he, he felt that, that, that the, the burdens that they were bearing were in some way his burden. He no longer saw himself as someone who could sit content in the palace of the king with the burdens of the people of his people far away. He was near to them. He felt their burdens as, one, as his own. 
And he felt them so much that he goes back the next day. You know, you would think that after committing murder, he'd be like, whoa, I'm not going to go back and see my people again. That got me into big trouble. But he goes back the next day, which is when he finds out that he sees these two Hebrews struggling together. And he sees and he says, something's wrong here. You guys shouldn't be fighting with one another, which is what ultimately he discovers that his deed from the day before has become known. And so he has to flee. But at this point, we need to notice that Moses observes his people's burdens, he feels his people's burdens, and he takes action to relieve the burdens of his people. In the church today, we need to remember that we share a common burden with one another. Uh, We share the burden of sin. It's not the literal slavery that that Israel felt in Egypt, but it's the burden of sin. Paul writes in Romans, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Now, for each of us, that burden is going to look and feel a little bit different. We don't all struggle with the same types of sins. But but nevertheless, our fallen nature is something that we all have in common, whether you're American or Colombian or male or female or young or old. We all bear the burden of sin, a common burden of sin. But what happens as we grow in our Christian life is we forget that. And we do one of two things. Either we think of ourselves as Moses up in the palace and we think, well, there's people, poor people down there who have the burden of sin. I need to go help them. Or we think, I'm down here in the, in the, among the slaves, and everybody else in the church lives, in Moses, lives up in the palace with Moses and the king, and I'm the only one that bears this burden of sin, and so I can't share that with anybody. But we need to remember that while our, our, our particular sin burdens are going to look a little bit different, we all bear the same burden. And if we think that well, our sin is sort of unique or, or less bad than other people, then we are going to lose our ability to serve and to feel united with other people in the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and uh, pastor of an underground church in the 1930s and 40s, he wrote this in his famous work, Life Together. He says, if my sinfulness appears to me to be anyway smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I'm still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. How can I possibly serve another person in humility if I regard his sinfulness as worse than my own? When we forget our common burden, we forget how to be humble. And when we forget how to be humble, we lose our ability to serve. And so, friends, like Moses, observe the burdens of the people around you. Take notice of them. Ask about them. Feel them as the, 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 same, the same burden that you share. And be humble, because you carry it too. So that's our common burden, the, the burden of sin. But there's more to, to our commonality that we, that we need to see from this story. And that is that not only do we share a common burden, we share a common story together. One of the things that jumps out to you as you read this passage, if you're familiar with the Bible, is how common and how, how many similarities it has with previous passages from the book of Genesis. Uh, when Abraham wanted to find a wife for his son Isaac, he sent his servant back to his people. And where does he find a wife for Isaac? Finds, him, finds her at a well. They go to a well, they water their camels and their flocks, and he finds a wife for Isaac in Rebekah. And then a generation later, 
uh, Jacob finds a wife, uh, a wife Rachel, for, him, for himself at a well where these shepherds come and harass these ladies who are trying to feed their flocks and he stands up and protects them and chases them off. Well, Moses does the same thing. He flees Egypt and he, he goes to Midian, which is at the southern portion of the Arabian Peninsula, uh, right there at the top, by the uh, Red Sea and the Arabian Sea. And he finds a wife at a well. And while that seems kind of weird, uh, it's not something that we typically do today, but it's uh, what God is doing here in his word is he's tying Moses together with the people, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wants us to see Moses as another one in the line there, as someone who's carrying on the same story that God began back when he made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But there's something else going on here, something beneath the surface that we see uh, in verse 22. Moses uh, marries Zipporah, the wife of this priest, and they have a son, and they name him Gershom. And Moses tells us why he chose that name. He said, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Someone came up to me after the first service and said, what's that word, sojourner? They thought I was saying soldier. Not soldier, sojourner. What is a sojourner? A sojourner is someone who lives temporarily in a country that's not their own. Someone who temporarily resides in a country that's not their own. Uh, You see, up until this point, Moses had not felt like a sojourner. He felt at home in Egypt. That that that, That was his people. That was the people that he felt most connected to. And so what God does is he rips him out of that land, places him in another, so much so that he names his child a sojourner, because he said, now I feel like I am far away from my land and my people. In order to lead the people of Israel, who were sojourners in a foreign land in Egypt, far away from their homeland in, in Palestine, Moses needed to be made like them. He needed to feel connected to their story as sojourners, someone who was far away from what is comfortable and what, and what feels right to him. And Moses would, will live the rest of his life like that. He won't even be able to live in the promised land that God had promised to his people. He'll, he'll see it from afar, but he will die outside of it. Moses will be on the lamb, a sojourner for the rest of his life. And as believers today, friends, we share that same fundamental identity with Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the people of Israel. We, you and I, are sojourners in a foreign land. Now, I I know that in this church, many people here are literally sojourners in a foreign land. If you're, if you're not from Colombia, you are here and you're living and, you've, and you feel what Moses feels here, where you're, you say, I, I'm, I don't feel like I'm home. And, if, uh, and even if you are a Colombian here, you feel like, okay, well, this, this feels like my home. But as a Christian, whether you're here in Colombia and that's where you're from, or whether you go home one day back to your country, back where you are from, you're still not home. You're still not in the place where God is ultimately bringing you because God is not bringing you to Colombia, He's not bringing you to the U.S., He's not bringing you to Africa, to Europe, wherever it is. That is not your ultimate home as a Christian. Your ultimate home as a Christian, your ultimate citizenship as a Christian is in the kingdom of God. It's in the eternal kingdom that God is calling all of us to, to sojourn to in the the heavenly kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. 
Which means, friends, that your people are not ultimately the people who have the same skin color that you do, not the people that speak the same language that you do, who shop at the same stores, who eat the same food. They're the people of God, the people who call Jesus their Lord and Savior, the people who can say together with you, you know, no matter where I am, I'm still not home. I'm looking forward to the kingdom that God is calling me to. And what's neat about this church and the way that I've seen this play out here in a way that I haven't in other places is that we get to practice that here in a way that a lot of people don't. We get to feel that weight of feeling like I'm homeless. But we need to t- that is an identity that we need to protect here because it would be easy for us to build a unity, to build a commonality around the experience of living outside of our home country or the ability to speak English or whatever it might be, to build our unity around that. But we need to push beyond that and to say that's not ultimately what ties us together as a church. What ties us together as a church is the fact that we belong to, all belong to the same place. We all belong to the kingdom of heaven. And so in our everyday conversations with one another, we need to push past those more superficial commonalities and, and ask about that walk with each other. To ask the questions about our deeper relationship with the Lord, to say, how are you doing? How are you growing in your faith? What is it like to live as a sojourner in your skin? Or to begin to pull people back who may still kind of be externally part of the church community, but who are maybe slipping away in terms of their faith and their walk with Christ. We need to be able to have the courage to ask the question, to say, tell me what's going on. What questions do you have? What doubts do you have? Where are you wrestling with the Lord? Those are the places where that unity begins to show itself, that deeper unity that will keep us tied together as a community. But that's not easy to do. Living as a sojourner is hard. It's hard, literally, as you guys know, living as a sojourner here. But it's even harder to, to live as a sojourner, to follow Christ for our entire life, no matter where he calls us. And in order to do what Moses did, to leave this life of privilege, to leave, leave the life of wealth in order to join himself with a despised people, you need a reason to do that. You need a solid reason to do that. You need a reason that doesn't change throughout the various seasons of your life. A, a reason to continue to associate yourself with the church and with the people of God that transcends geography, that transcends life stage, that transcends all of that. You need a deep reason. So what was the reason that Moses ultimately saw in order to do what he did? To leave his life behind and be united together with this despised people. Why did he do that? We see that in, our, in this last piece of the glue that ties us together, and that is that we share a common God. We share a common God. The author of the Hebrews tells us why Moses did what he did. Listen to this. He writes, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses saw the invisible God. 
And that's what compelled him to keep going. He saw the invisible God. How how does he see the invisible God? In verse 23, he writes this description of God, the most moving description of God that we have up until this point in the Bible. Look at it with me. He says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He heard their groaning. As they cried out for help from their slavery, he heard them. He wasn't too busy, he wasn't too occupied with something else, but the cries of his people reached his ears, and he heard them. And then he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Many of us forget the promises that we make. We think, oh, did I say that? <laughs> but God says, I, I made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that even though, his, even though my people would live in slavery for 400 years in Egypt, I am going to come and deliver them out of that. He remembers the promises that he made. And not only does he hear, not only does he remember, it says he sees them. God saw the people of Israel. He didn't just hear them. He didn't just remember, but he saw their burdens. Like Moses who went down to the, to the slave quarters and he saw their burdens. God did the same and he saw the burdens. He knew what that was like. And then it finally says, and God knew. God knew. He knew what they were going through. He wasn't a distant God. He was near and close to them, close enough to know what they were going through. And what that meant is that now he is going to come down into the mess of their slavery and do something about it. That's the invisible God that Moses saw. But the good news about for us is that we don't have to be content with seeing an invisible God. Because the invisible God has become visible. The invisible God has taken on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ as as someone who who heard the cries of his people to be delivered from slavery. He has heard your cries. As someone who remembered the promises that, that he made, he came to keep those promises and to deliver you from your slavery to sin. Jesus Christ, the visible image of the invisible God, saw your struggles and he knew. He knew in a way that no God anywhere has ever known. He knows by experience what it is to bear the weight of sin because he bore the weight of sin for you. And so we don't have to rest with the invisible God. We can see the visible God in Jesus. And now because he has come down into our mess, the mess of our slavery to deliver us out of it, because he has come into your mess, you can step into the mess of the people around you. You can step into the difficulties and the burdens and the sins of the people sitting next to you because God has come down into your mess and made himself visible in order to bring you out of it. I heard a story years ago of a woman who did this quite literally. Jane was a a mother who had raised four kids and one day she was working in the nursery at church and a young mom dropped her toddler off uh, for the nursery and went to church. And the young mom came back after the service was over to pick up her toddler, and her, her kid was dressed in different clothes, di- clothes that didn't quite fit him quite well, but uh, 
different clothes than the clothes in which she, she dropped him off. And the clothes in which she dropped him off were in a grocery bag tied and handed to her. And she naturally asked Jane, what happened? <laughs> she said, you know what? Uh, we had a, a little blowout accident and uh, it got, got all over the clothes, but it's okay. It's, it's all right. We had some extra clothes on hand. The mom, of course, is mortified. Why didn't you call me and come tell me? Why didn't you get me out of the service and come to clean up this mess? That It's my mess to, to clean up. It's my kid. And, and Jane just sort of matter-of-factly said, you know what, uh, when your son was baptized, I made a promise to, to take care of him as if he was my own, to clean up his messes as if they were my own. And so, don't worry about it. I was just making good on the promise that I made. The little boy was part of her people. He was her people. Because she was united with him in his common burden. She was united with him in his story. And she had been served by the invisible God who came, became visible to her to take care of her mess. And so she said, I'm going to step into the mess of others. Friends, may that attitude characterize who we are as a church, as people who have been served by this gracious and kind God. And may we then now step into the mess of other people and serve them as God has served us in Christ. Father, we thank you for this great news that though we are people from all different places, 26 and counting different countries from all over the world, we know that we belong together because we belong to you. We thank you that you have built this church upon the one foundation who is Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray that you would help us to confess that confession of faith and trust in that one Lord Jesus Christ and that we would find unity as a church together around him, around his promises, and around our citizenship, which is ultimately in heaven. And as you take us there, we pray that we would be a people committed to serve one another as you have been committed to continuing to serve us in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.